Heads up, the following podcast contains adult language and deals with adult subjects. Keep this in mind as you listen. On this follow-up bonus episode, Grace and I are talking about Grace's episode with her best friend, Fanya, of 20 years. On with the show. Hey folks, I'm Grace. And I'm James. Welcome to Fundamental Shift, the podcast where we explore the major shakeups in our lives, their fault lines, and aftershocks. Thanks for joining us on this bonus episode. So Grace, I just have to say I really loved your episode with Fanya. Just the conversation that you had, the connection that I could feel between you as you recounted your memories together and how you went from you know close Christian friends who met in fundamentalist ministry to close non-religious secular friends. So I uh, just wanted to say that I was captivated the entire time. Well, thanks. We had a good time doing it. You went through, both of you, a lot of asynchronous shifts at various times in your life, changes in belief. And I was wondering, during those changes, you may have talked a little bit about this, but how hard did you try to sort of proselytize each other back into a Christian belief or into the church? Or or did you at all? And if, if not, why didn't you do that? So I don't think um, proselytize would be the right word for us. We joked on the podcast that we didn't even pray for each other during these times. Right. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with we were going through our, our own shift and our mind was so full of that, you know, and what that meant for us personally that we weren't sure how to attack that with the other person. I also think that that wasn't in our nature. We're both doers. We like to, you know, make an action to serve. And when we were in fundamental ministry, that definitely was our MO. So if there was a service project, we were there. If there was a mission trip, we were there, right? Our job to us was to be the hands and feet of Christ, (laughs) so to speak. Mm. Um, we weren't really into door to door knocking and evangelizing. Now I was forced into a lot of that Mm -hmm. in the Baptist church, especially as a child with my dad. Um, but it wasn't my thing and I did, I was very uncomfortable with it. Even having grown up in the church and, and my whole time in the church, just very uncomfortable with it. Sometimes I thought it was just my personality. And then later I'd figured out it was my personality partially, but also just that I didn't believe in trying to change people in that way or change people's minds in that way was just really uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, So were you more of like the love them into the kingdom sort of approach? Yes, absolutely. You know, um, St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. That was Mm. definitely how we both were. So partly that's just the way we're built. But the other part, I think, is just that we were both very uncomfortable with that um, model. And especially on mission trips, especially when you go and you see that people are um, living well, you know, and like even if they're struggling, they're not having necessarily a hard time spiritually or relationally often, you know. Yeah. Um, 
obviously there are many hungry people in the world and thirsty people in the world and people who need medical attention and all kinds of things like that. But often you would speak with those people on these mission trips and spiritually, relationally, mentally, they would be more full than you. Hmm. And I think a lot of Americans find that when they go to the quote unquote mission field, as we did that, I think we both were very, um, then drawn to the idea of not colonizing people through religion. Mm. That was something that we were thinking about way before it was a popular topic. Yeah. I was, I was thinking, you know, when you see how people are living and how they, they seem to be doing well spiritually, they have happy lives. When you show up, is it a point where like your conscience kicks in and says, I don't think I should be messing with this. Yes. 100% for for me, and I know I've had enough conversations with Fanya to know, absolutely. You get there and you're like, what what right do I have to mess with you? You you quickly learn that there's a lot of ego to it, a lot of hubris. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't want to function in that kind of arrogance. Now, if I could come and help in other ways, which is what I ended up doing and certainly what she ended up doing. She's a nurse, so she you know, helped in medical ways. I did things like ESL. Um, and I, even that I struggled with, but in the situations I did it in, it was actually something that was very useful for people, um, to be able to attend school. So I felt like that was, but I did think about it. Like I had to think about it for a minute. Um, like what am I doing coming and telling you to speak this language instead of your language? You know, it's, it's a difficult thing you have to think through. There is absolutely a value to ESL. Um, just because it's such a predominant language in the world. Yeah. And so in the end it helps people move through, you know, certain circles. And so once I could look at it that way, I was able to function (laughs) and be helpful, uh, more than, than burdensome. Um, and I also did some things with just whatever needed to be done sort of work, right? Construction, you know, agriculture, those sorts of things. And I think those things absolutely have value, especially if you can go in without an agenda. And my problem was going in with the agenda. Right. Um, and she also had that. So I think that then when it broke down to our personal relationship, we weren't going to proselytize each other. Um, because that still kind of would kick into me of like, I feel like I need to tell you that this is bad and sinful and terrible and you're going to hell, but I love you and I'm not sure I have that right. So I'm going to love you back into the kingdom, just like you were saying a minute ago. So yeah. that was absolutely always my thing is like, I can show her there's a better way and I can love her back into the kingdom. Yeah, I definitely identify with that. I was always more you know, let me lead by example. Let me play in this band or, you know, mm-hmm. do that service project. But yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to approach people and, and hit them with a sales pitch. That was never, that was never me. Um, I even faked in, in college. Um, I had to take a, uh, I had to take a class called Evangelism 101. <laughs> so and, did I. Okay. So oh, you, surprise. You see what I'm getting at here, but Mm -hmm. I don't know about your class, but for mine, one of the projects that that were required as part of your final grade was a witnessing report (sighs) where you were supposed to go out 
and witness to someone, basically proselytize them, try to get them to convert to Christianity, and you write a report about it and turn it in, you get graded on it. I just would not do it. So I made up a story about some guy I worked with in high school when we were bagging groceries together. (laughs) And it was a real person I was talking about, but this never happened. I just made up the scenario, turned it in. I got an A, you know, and... You know, that's I don't know if I thing. should be proud of it or what, but that's that's what happened. Well, yes. <laughs> a and B, they kind of deserve it because I learned this in Christian college. They don't really want you to think. They want you to tell you what they told you in class. That's true. And I just had such a hard time with that when I would write papers. <laughs> um, I would get put through the ringer if I didn't just regurgitate back to them what I had learned. Mm-hmm. It was so frustrating for me. I don't know about you, but that was just so frustrating for me. I had a similar project and I thought it was the dumbest thing on the planet. Like, and I sort of halfway did it and sort of made some stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to say we did the right thing. Yeah. And I definitely did that. I, there was my history class I talked about in the previous, in my episode, where we had the revisionist history about, you know, slaves were happy and the right. Civil War was primarily uh, a uh, theological battle <laughs> between <laughs> the transcendentalists in the North and the biblical Christians in the South. This is literally what they taught in this class. And I just listened to the TA talking, just rattling off about this one time. And then when time came around, they did a blue book exam where you just basically had to write out, okay, what was this course about? Mm -hmm. And I almost word for word put down what this TA had said in one class and I got an A on it. So yeah, I was, I was faking so much during that time. I actually have um, family members who believe that now. Hmm. So, yeah. And and the thing is, and I don't know what causes this. Uh, I don't think that I'm just somehow this better person or anything. But for me, I just always knew that things like that were not right. I just always had this uneasiness, even though I was being brought up in it, that they just didn't jive with me. Now, that's not to say that I didn't say stupid shit (laughs) or participate in dumb shit. It is to say that I, I just wasn't always comfortable with it. Yeah. And I credit whatever that is uh, with kind of helping me get out of it because I was absolutely surrounded by it. I did not have external influences that helped me get out. Mm. So I think that it's really interesting that, you know, whatever nature, nurture, how we're built, you know, those things. I, I can't say exactly what, what makes certain people stay, what makes certain people go. Um, I know there's always a thing that sort of, is the straw that breaks our back that makes us go, you know, and it's different for everyone. But I'm just so curious uh, about people's stories in that. And I love hearing other people's stories about, you know, the Mormons say when their shelf broke, (laughs) that's a a, a term that Shelly uses a lot on, on Latter day lesbian. And a lot of people in that group talk about this, you know, I put all these things up on the shelf and finally it broke. And I like that imagery a lot. And and for many of us, it's hard because you look at that shelf and it's, it's so full. It's like, why didn't you go when there was 50 things on there? Why did it take 51? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but who can yeah. say? Like, there, there's just, that's part of our story and, and part of what makes us tick. And I love hearing that. And I'm just going to put a shameless plug out here, guys. That's the kind of stuff we want to hear from you. Tell us about the things that make 
you tech, tell us about the things that have made your shelf break um, when you've left a fundamental situation or maybe an abusive situation in your life, anything like that. We, we want to hear from you. We want to interact with you guys and hear your stories. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. So, um, back to Fanya, you mentioned at one point, I think when it was when Fanya revealed that she had had sex, uh, being terrified that Fanya, who at this point had become like your chosen family would go to hell. Uh, how long did that fear stick around for you? Too long. Um, I would say she, she was not in the States at the time. So our friendship was already pretty long distance. And at that time, you know, it was email, right? You didn't have zoom FaceTime, things like that. Texting was still T nine. And if you know what that is, you're a (laughs) zenial. Um, so it was a lot of email and we just had a lot of discussions online about it. And I'm sure that she shared things, uh, in the time she was comfortable and I responded in the time I was comfortable. And I know that there were pretty long pauses between some of those. Um, so that was just life. There was time difference and things like that. And there was me just trying to figure out what I thought about it all. And so I would say that that fear really didn't cease until I started to question hell itself. I went through a period where I started to really say, I don't think I believe in hell. Now, this time I couldn't say, I don't believe in heaven. But I definitely was in a, I don't believe in hell space. Or if there is hell, it's just separation from God. It's not fire and brimstone, which I really thought it was, you know, fire and wailing and the gnashing of teeth um, yeah. until, until that time in my life. So this was, you know, late teens, early 20s. And so it probably didn't really go away until I dealt with how I felt about hell itself. And unfortunately that did affect our relationship. Uh, and, mm. and I don't blame her for being a little standoffish during that time toward me. Cause who would want that look on someone's face of sadness? Cause I think you're going to hell and I don't want you to, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So you got through it, of course, eventually. Yeah. Um, and I found it amazing that you've been able to maintain such a close friendship for so many years with Fanya. I don't know many people, including myself, who have been able to do this. Um, so you talked a little bit about keeping in touch and the intentionality of reaching out. So with that, in in what ways, what other ways maybe has the dynamic of your friendship changed through various shifts and life events, things like marriage, relocation, career changes, and how have you overcome challenges presented by those various shifts? Well, I think definitely we were, we sort of solidified our relationship pretty much after this event you and I were just discussing, um, because I called her and said, I don't think I believe these things anymore. And so that allowed us to really freely have a closer connection because we did intentionally build our friendship. We wanted to be in friendship with one another. Um, and we, we did the work to do that as far as, you know, it's joyful work, not work work, but just the, made the, the effort and the intentionality to, to stay in touch, even if we were not in the States at the same time or lived somewhere else, whatever. 
we just made the intentionality to have that communication. It wasn't always as often uh, as it is now. I probably talk to her about every day, um, even if it's just a text, you know. Um, And then there were longer periods of time through that, and we weren't as close. But it was just sort of always moving toward that. And as it did, we just kind of continued to say, this is a friendship that I want and I'm going to, to have, really. And honestly, there we were the kind of people that were there for each other for those hard things you mentioned, like relocation. You know, we showed up for moving day. <laughs> you know, if you have friends that show up for moving day, those are your real friends. Yeah, hold on uh, to them. Yeah, hold on to those people. Um, career changes, supporting each other through those sorts of things. We just, we always showed up for what I would say are the harder things to show up for in friendship. It wasn't just, oh, I'm going to show up for drinks with you or whatever, or a party or coffee. Um, it was always that we were there for each other and, and the things that to many are not fun, you know, are hard, our work. And we always seem to make fun of those things. <laughs> they always turned out with, some sort of disaster that made a great story and made us laugh. And that just really bonded us. And so for us, those are the things that, that pretty much made and solidified our friendship instead of us having this other thing that got us through those things of our friendship. That's great. Yeah. So very, still very amazing to me that they are still together, still keeping in touch and uh, yeah. I'm a little jealous <laughs> of that kind of friendship, but, um, you know, it's been hard for us this year. Um, I haven't seen her now in almost a year and, um, that's the longest I've, you know, gone without seeing her mm. probably in all of our 20 years. I mean, there might've even been times we only saw each other once a quarter, but certainly not once the year. So the pandemic has, um, has made it difficult. I mean, we probably are more intentional right now about the virtual stuff. Cause what else are you going to do? You know, we co-cook, right. we set, we set dates and we co-cook the same thing together or something similar, things like that. We just try to have fun. We watch shows together and you know, you just, you do the best you can to spend time, even if it's virtual. Yeah. But it's, it's joyful. It's enjoyable. Uh, at the same time, a little difficult, a little bit stingy because you just want to be there in person. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a challenging time for anyone with friends, uh, you know, not being able to hang out. One thing that I found really interesting um, about your conversation, and maybe this is more of a comment than a question, but we can talk about it. Sure. Um, is the idea of making amends for the damage that you caused just from being part of a fundamentalist system. Um, I found that to be much more meaningful than deconstruction for deconstruction's sake. I think that for many people, deconstruction and uh, diso- dissociation from systems and ideologies that prey on fear and exploit one's sense of compassion can sometimes stop there and primarily be a self-serving effort, but it shouldn't stop there. I think just because we were indoctrinated, we may have been victims of wrong teaching, it doesn't absolve us of the responsibility to make things right. We found a way out of it. Now we need to 
counteract the effects, find a way to end the cycle of indoctrination, and try to reverse at least some of the damages we had a hand in, even if it was passive complicity. Um, And you also said part of what made it work was what made it so awful, and that kind of ties into it as well. Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. Um, You know, for us, we were able to recognize that, that what made it work was what made it awful long before we left. We um, talked about it, but often in roundabout ways, in circles. And we um, had a hard time taking it on directly until we had definitely gotten out, both of us, which I think makes some sense. Uh, it's It was a very scary time for us, and we weren't, you know, exactly on the same track out. So it makes sense that we were trepidatious with each other at the time but I can remember even when I just started to think about coming out of it and certainly Fania she had been working her way out of it we started looking for ways to give back we never really ran away from it we certainly ran away from the institution itself but not from the fact that we needed to to give back and to try to, I guess, account would be the right word for, for some of the things that we had been, you know, participating in. Mm-hmm. And yes, we were young and impressionable and all of those things, but we were also technically adults at that time. Young adults, but adults. And we really felt the need to give back and to to try to sort that out. And again, sort of going back to the beginning, we're people of action. So we're not ones to um, delay in service. So we wanted to find outlets where we could um, serve again in a way that we felt was now appropriate and now helpful (laughs) and not just a way to proselytize, quite frankly. You know, so many ministries are really just, they're not there to just give. They're not there to just help. You know, they're really there. Their number one goal is conversion. And yeah. we really just wanted to get out of that space and get into a space where we could get back just to give back. So I think that it, that was something that we also connected on and probably solidified and continued our, our friendship after we had gotten out of those systems together. It's, I don't know if this is the greatest comparison. We can cut it if it doesn't okay. work. I kind of think of that strategy or philosophy behind a lot of Christian ministry in that you're supposed to be pulling people from a burning building Mm -hmm. in order to save them. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like now that you're outside of that system, you kind of have almost a very similar uh, driving force where you have to get people out of what you... didn't realize at the time was a burning building, but now you do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's fair. I, I, de- I definitely think, so I have this saying that everything is church, <laughs> meaning when I got out, I suppose I thought everything would just all of a sudden be different, but then I would go join a volunteer organization or committee. Right. And the same sort of issues I didn't like in church would come up as far as like weird power struggles and, things like that. And I would just be like, oh, 
you know, and just the politics of committees and organizations and things like that. And I just, I remember just saying, Oh, everything is church. Everything is church. And then I realized everything is human. And so that really helped me to not feel like, okay, am I just on the other side, actually not helping anything? Um, and I would like to think at this point that rather than just running in willy nilly to a burning building to continue the metaphor here and trying to pull someone out that hopefully I'm helping to put water on that fire and I'm helping to, um, aid someone by having, you know, the big trampoline at the bottom to get themselves out. Mm. And I think that that's a really important shift in the way you think about it. Yes, we're all human. And yes, we will always have these sort of power and political struggles as humans on any committee, any sort of service we do in the world, you know, political volunteer, whatever it is, activism. I mean, all of those things all have such good intentions and many religious spaces have such good intentions. It's when we get that human ego in there <laughs> that can really start to mess with that situation. And I think that's one reason I'm straight away from leadership in that way. And I just want to go in and, <laughs> you know, just be a grunt worker and just mm-hmm. actually help get something done. That's going to feed someone or, you know, assist someone that's really where I sit a little more easy these days. Um, you know, back in the day, I did take on a lot of leadership roles. And I found a lot of it was just useless. It wasn't helping anyone. And I'm just not in that space anymore. I'd rather be a grunt worker, <laughs> so to speak. And I think that there's value in that. I think there's value in saying, I don't need to be a leader. I just want to be here to serve. And if leadership comes up and that fits for you, great but it's not your goal. And I think that in a lot of situations, people can go in and find organizations where they can use their voice. And oftentimes they feel maybe small in their lives and they can have a big voice over here. You know, I've seen that happen too. Mm -hmm. And again, that's very human. We all do these sorts of things. I certainly have, but I try to keep my brain in that, that space now of, Hey, let's put some water on that fire. Let's, let's, put a real solution, not just pull someone out of it. Let's stop the fire. I like that. And, and the idea of maybe empowering people to be able to escape on their own, Mm -hmm. um, kind of the metaphor of, I love metaphors. (laughs) Me too. Apparently, But, um, the whole, you know, give a man a fish versus teach a man to fish. Yeah. It's that idea of empowerment and giving people the tools that they can then use to get out themselves and empower themselves going forward. Absolutely. Yeah. I like, I like that a lot. What I do miss most is the casseroles. And if you have listened to the latter day lesbian episode, you know, this yep. Fonnie even misses the casseroles the most, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really a metaphor to continue the metaphor theme. You know, it's, it's that act of being cared for. Mm. it's it's that when you have events in your life, someone shows up with a casserole, it might be real shitty, but they showed up at your house with a casserole <laughs> and you it's don't have to cook. <laughs> yeah. So it's all because you don't have to cook and you don't have to pay out, you know, the rear for delivery. 
because yeah. there's a casserole, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's a metaphor. I mean, I just, I really sometimes really miss that kind of care. Yeah. That sense of community mm-hmm. and knowing that you've got someone there who will sort of pull up when you're, when you, when you need it. But what's yeah. so terrible, that awful thing that makes it work is you got to be in the club. Yeah. And that's it's all conditional. It doesn't matter how much I miss a casserole. I'm not going back to join that club, you know? Yeah. It's a good I'll casserole. I'll make one on my not, own, freeze it, pull it out. It's not that good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, pull yeah. it out the next time I have trouble. Yep. And may, maybe that's one of the big challenges. Like the, it was maybe one of the last things you hold on to is the casserole. It's like, uh, yeah, I, I got to let that one go. And that's, that's like the last, Oh yeah. the last thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, that whole culture was the last thing that I let go of. Mm. Yeah, it, it really, it wasn't doctrine. It wasn't hell. It wasn't anything like that. It was the way that you feel you belong in those circles. And unless you've been in that kind of circle, it's hard to understand that. And, and the funny thing is, that sense of belonging even comes when you belong to a strict sect like mine where, you know, men are over you. You feel very oppressed. There, there's an abusive nature to it. Even with that, you still belong to this club. Hmm. There's still this weird sense of belonging that can make you feel uh, secure to a degree. And even though you know that it's a lot freer on the outside of that, it's just very scary. Uncertainty, you know, can can really drive people to stay. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. It's it's like the you have to reach a point where the the pain of staying is is worse than the pain of leaving and embracing the unknown. I guess. Yes, I will drop a lovely little self help recovery quote on you here. When the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing, then change you must. And that is by a couple of uh, well-known Christian psychologists, Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. Don Townsend. You know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And I'd (laughs) say that that one is spot on for me. And it really did affect me when I was in the church. Like, I, I thought about that quote a lot. And then the pain of staying got greater than the pain of the change. Yeah, I think that's the quote I was thinking of. I think one of my coworkers once shared that with me. And yeah, definitely, like you said, even if it's a broken clock, it's right twice a day. And that is spot on, I'd say. So would I. James, I had so much fun reflecting back on this episode and following up with you. And I can't thank Fanya enough for being willing to put herself out there, too. Absolutely. To check out more information on the issue of maternal mortality, we want to once again highlight Black Women's Blueprint and Sister Song. We'll link those sites in our show notes. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us on the platform of your choice. Your feedback means a lot to us. It lets others find us more easily and helps us know more about the content you're looking for. Now that you've heard from us, we want to hear from you. Here's how you can reach us. On Facebook, simply search Fundamental Shift. On Twitter and Instagram, find us at FunShiftPod and at Fun.Shift.Pod, respectively. You can find us on the web at FunShiftPod.com. You can email us at FunShiftPod at gmail.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 
665-765-7473. Tune in next time for our main show. It drops on Tuesday. And until then, folks, remember, shift happens.